Take your Bibles now and open them to Joshua chapter 7. And again, it's um, it's a rather long, it's a whole chapter, but it's a whole story. It's just one story, and I hope that uh, you'll uh, not, hope that I won't lose you in the in the length of it. So stay with me as I read Joshua chapter 7 at verse 1 through verse 26. Here we go. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things for Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near beth east of Bethel, and said to them, go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai, and they returned to Joshua and said to him, uh, do not <clears throat> have... All the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about three thousand men went up from there, went up there from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about thirty-six of their men, and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim, and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that, would that we had been content to dwell among the, uh, beyond the Jordan? O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? The Lord said to Joshua, Get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs from the, before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up. Consecrate the people and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore... You shall be brought near by your tribes, and the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans, and the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households, and the household that the Lord takes shall come near by man by man. And he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire, he and all that he is, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord, and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near, tribe by tribe, and the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah, and the, cl- and the clan of the Zerahites was taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zerahites man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he brought near his household man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel, and give praise to him. And tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar, 
and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. Then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent and behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel. And they laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold and his sons and daughters and his oxen and donkeys and sheep and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with, the, with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. The grass withers and the flower fades. <clears throat> but the word of our God, that endures forever. Perhaps you noticed in um, <clears throat> your bulletin the title of my sermon this morning. Uh, I didn't think that up. Rather, it is a knockoff on the title of perhaps the most famous sermon that's ever been preached on American soil. It was preached um, in the late 18th century or the middle 18th century by perhaps the finest theologian that America has ever produced. His name is Jonathan Edwards. And that sermon, of course, was entitled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, which has been, stu- which has been read and studied by countless generations of American students who have, um, in the main, dismissed it as cruel and barbaric, the sermon that is. Um, the sermon by Jonathan Edwards is much more likely to be laughed at today than it is to be uh, praised and, and, and taken seriously. Now, guys, um, it, is, it is, in our culture in the 21st century, it's hard to preach about this topic. Because um, anger is something that is normally associated with um, losing one's temper, um, maybe a loss of control, unreasonableness, um, even bigotry. And um, <clears throat> and yet, I, I want to tell you, that is the subject of Joshua chapter 7. It is the, I mean, the, the, the primary theme of Joshua chapter 7 is the anger of God. Now, so often, Joshua 7 is read, and people come away from it and pick up these two themes. The um, overconfidence, you know, coming as it does on the heels of the great victory at Jericho. They come away saying, well, you know, the problem was they were overconfident. Or even the issue of um, the neglect of prayer, which seems to be evident in, in verse 2. Um, both of those things are often used as uh, as highlights of Joshua chapter 7. And, and no doubt, both of those things are issues. That is, we do neglect prayer, do we not? And um, we are, <laughs> incredibly, overconfident at times. Are we not? 
But ladies and gentlemen, the neglect of prayer and overconfidence, neither of those subjects are the issue, the issue, in Joshua chapter 7. God's anger is the... um, is the primary issue in in Joshua chapter 7, and I want to explain to you why I'm so certain of that. Look at the text, guys. Look at at verse 1. Joshua chapter, uh, verse 1. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. You see that? Now go to the last chapter of the verse, verse 26, where we find again, Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Do you see what the narrator has done? It's as if verse 1 and verse 26 are the brackets around this chapter. It's like verse 1 forms the left side of the bracket and uh, verse 26 forms the right side of the bracket. And everything else in the middle of that is, is designed to give you instruction. It's to explain. It's to give you input about that subject. The subject... Being the anger of God. Now, guys, while overconfidence and neglect of prayer are very preachable subjects, they are not the subject of this chapter. Israel failed. She was beaten by an inferior army from Ai. And the reason that she failed was not because of overconfidence or neglect of prayer. She failed because of the anger of God. This story in chapter 7 tells you that God's people failed because they were under The wrath of God. So in our interpretation of um, chapter 7, whatever it's going to be, at the top of the page, you got to write down a lesson on the anger of God. By the way, we're going to take a couple of weeks to look at it. Actually, the next time we'll, I'll, we'll next time we'll be together. Well, no, we'll be together on the twentieth. But next time we return to this will be the twenty seventh of February. And really, this morning, what you're going to get is really some introductory items. But we'll we'll look at some harder stuff, Lord willing, on the twenty seventh. But guys, let me ta- let me take time to insert a caution uh, at this juncture. No one attribute of God is ever to be isolated and viewed as a summary of God's character. Um, our, our culture has done that very thing with love. That is, God is love and that he is only love. Ladies and gentlemen, that is not true. But neither is it true to say that God is anger and only anger. Gang, there is in the scriptures, in its effort to describe God, these these seeming paradoxes in God's nature. 
For instance, God is full of mercy, but he is also known for justice. A paradox that those two things can exist side by side in the same person. God is known to be loving, but he is known to be wrathful. In the same person, the the Bible often describes him as a lion, but it also describes him as a lamb. Jonathan Edwards called those diversities. He he talks about the diversity of, or the, 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 the diversity of his excellencies. That's a Jonathan Edwards term, guys. If you choose one or the other of those ends of the spectrum, then what you end up with is a God that doesn't exist. Guys, uh, if you, if you decide that there's only, there's only this side of that equation, I, I only like, I only want a God who is love. That's, that's the kind of God that, 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 you know, really appeals to me. That's the kind of God that I want. I, I just want God to be just love. I, I, in, in essence, I want God to be what I want God to be. Well, I can tell you this, ladies and gentlemen. Joshua chapter 7 confronts you with something that you don't like to think God is. If you, um, if you forget either end of these spectrums, then you have chosen to create a God. You've chosen to create your own God. So I say that as a caution now, but having said that, ladies and gentlemen, the subject of Joshua chapter 7 is the anger of God. And if you and I are wise, then we won't, we won't try to find some way to explain it away. If we're wise, we'll ask the question, why? Why is he angry? And in um, in my own feeble way, I want to try to answer that this morning in the hopes that all of us will not have to face what Israel faced and is described in Joshua chapter 7. Let me add one more thing and we'll get rolling. What makes us think that Israel is the only congregation who who has been or is under the wrath of God? Maybe this one is. Thus you understand at least my title. The church. In the hands of an angry God. Several point, <clears throat> several points that I want to make this morning, and most of them, as I said, are somewhat introductory. We'll come up and we'll come back and um, wrap it up a month from now. But here's the first thing that I want you to see. It's in it's in verse one, and I want you to know that Scripture never wastes words. That is, it doesn't. Um, it, it, it's never giving you filler. 
The Bible is not trying to make itself bigger by just adding some words. So what you get in verse 1 is significant, and I, and I want to explain why. First of all, the identified culprit in this whole scene is a man by the name of Achan. By the way, his name, the name of Achan, means trouble. But in verse 1, we are given the genealogy of, of Achan. His great-great-grandfather was a man by the name of Judah. You've heard that name. His great-grandfather was a man by the name of um, Zerah. Does that ring a bell? The name Zerah? Does anybody remember the circumstances that led to Zerah's birth? Well, let me tell you the story about Zerah's birth. It's recorded if you want to look, if you want to check me up, check me out. It's in Genesis 38. But let me just tell you the story about Zerah's birth. Zerah's father was a man by the name of Judah. And Judah took a wife, and his wife um, had three sons. First son was named Ur, the second one was Onan, and the third was Shelah. Um, for Ur, Judah arranged a marriage with a woman by the name of Tamar. This is all in Genesis 38. Um, so Ur married Tamar, and the text says that because Ur was wicked, God put him to death. And so according to a Levitical law... His brother, Onan, was then to assume the duties of husband to his brother's, his deceased brother's wife, Tamar, which he does. Um, the goal, of course, is to perpetuate the line. Onan thwarts that purpose, and because of his wickedness, he too is killed. He dies. <clears throat> So, you can imagine uh, a father's uh, understandable concern about giving his third son to this same woman, Tamar. I mean, what's the matter with that woman? I've already lost two sons with her. You know, I, I don't want to lose my third. And so he tells her, he tells Tamar, listen, when, when Shelah grows up and becomes, you know, of age, we'll get him, we'll get him to you. You, uh, don't worry. When he gets of age, he's a little young now, but when he becomes of age, we'll, we'll get Sheila and he'll be your husband. But Judah doesn't do that. So time marches on and Tamar recognizes that Judah is not giving his third son to her. And so she schemes her own little plan. And while on one occasion when Judah is out um, tending his flocks, she dresses up like a prostitute pitches a tent on the side of the road, and entices Judah uh, into her tent. At the end of that event, um, Judah says, I don't have anything to pay you, but I'll give you a lamb for your services. And she says, well, what do I have uh, to make sure that you will give me that lamb? What can you leave behind as collateral? And um, he said, well, I don't know. And she said, well, what about your signet ring and your staff? And he says, fine. So he takes off his signet ring, gives her the signet and the staff. And so he goes to his flock to get a lamb. And while he does, Tamar takes down her tent and disappears, heads back to the house. This is his daughter-in-law now. And so in the coming weeks, it's discovered that Tamar is with child. And Judah, in an act of incredible hypocrisy, having discovered that his daughter-in-law is pregnant... 
tells his servants, bring her out and burn her. (laughs) Talking about a double standard, you know. And about that time, Tamar steps out of the house and says, I am pregnant by the man who owns this staff and this signet ring. And Judah is caught red-handed. Turns out that Tamar was bearing twins. The first twin was the guy by the name of Perez. The second twin was a man named by, by, by the name of Zerah. Achan's great-grandfather. Now, ladies and gentlemen, if you hadn't connected the dots, let me connect them for you. What happens is, the sins of the father are being visited on the third and fourth generation, just like God promised in Exodus chapter 20, verse 5. Now, folks, in light of that, just how seriously would you say God takes sin? Now, we toy with it. Our our views of sin are very tame and, and, and lame. But guys, I can assure you that God doesn't. The existence of hell is a testimony to God's inflexible hatred of sin. All on display in that opening statement about about Achan's genealogy. Here's the second thing I want you to see. What I'm about to teach you now, guys, many of you are going to find new and somewhat perplexing, but stay with me. I bet you some of you have never heard of this, but um, it has to do with corporate solidarity. Um, it's, It's on display in this story. It has to do with the one and the many. The one versus the many. Corporate solidarity. Let me show it to you. It's, uh, it's there in verse one. <clears throat> it's, notice the, um, the interplay of the one and the many. Verse one. It opens by saying, the people of Israel broke faith. And then it says, Achan, the identified culprit, did this. And then before the text is over, over it says, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Wait a minute. Wait a minute, I thought Achan did it. Well, he did. But God's anger is on display against Israel. Remember, 36 men died along with Achan in that battle with with Ai. And not only that, his whole family was uh, was killed as well. But the the real illustration, or the better illustration, is found in verse 11. Look at verse 11. It says, Israel has sinned. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Achan did this. Look at the word, they have transgressed my covenant that I commanded. And they have taken some of the devoted things and they have stolen and lied and put them under their own belongings. Wait a minute. No, no. It was Achan that did that. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, 
And because of the, 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 the principle of corporate solidarity, <clears throat> the sin of the one The sin of the one is held against the sin of the many, or the the, the, the one in the many. Gang, <clears throat> it was Achan who committed the great crime. It is Israel who is considered guilty. What does that mean? Well, that means, first of all, that God viewed Israel as a unit. Secondly, it means... That Achan was not the only transgressor of the covenant. All Israel was guilty. 36 of them died. Thirdly, it means that there is a contagion to sin. My sin affects more than me. Ladies and gentlemen, do you know that your sin has more of an effect in this congregation than just on you? Do you know that my sin does too? You know, we Americans who live in the most individualistic culture in the history of mankind, we don't like this. In fact, we even determine truth, not based on some objective standard. We, we, we base truth on, on how it affects me. So potentially in America, we have 260 million truths. We individualists, we don't like this. We, we, We say, this isn't fair. Ladies and gentlemen, before you, um, before you object too strenuously, let me tell you one more thing it means. It means that God is willing to turn away his wrath from a group by the punishing of the sin of one. Like you see in Joshua 7. Guys, God will justify the many based on the righteousness of the one. Corporate solidarity. Let me, let me give you a story that illustrates it and I think illustrates it well. This is a story that's found in Genesis 18. We've talked about this story before. You know the story. You heard it in Sunday school. It's the story about God paying a visit to Abraham, and he's about to destroy Sodom. And, and, and Abraham uh, goes with him. And uh, right before God is about to destroy Sodom, Abraham breaks into a questioning, a line of questions. And he says, he says God, let me, let, before you do anything, God, tell me this. If there are 50 people living inside Sodom, would you destroy the whole city even though there's 50 inside? Fifty righteous people inside? God says, no. And then Abraham says, well, what about 45? What if there's only 45 people dwelling um, in, in the house in, in Sodom? Will you destroy Sodom even if there's 45 in there? He says, no, I won't, I, won't, I won't destroy with 45. He said, well, what about 40? Well, no, not 40 either. Well, what about 35? No, not 35. 30, 25, 20, 15. He gets all the way down to 10 and then Abraham stops. I don't know why he stopped. Maybe he lost nerve. But the problem with Abraham's questioning is that he stopped too soon. Guys, what, what, what Abraham should have asked is this. Okay, God, tell me, 
What if in all of Israel there is only one righteous man to be found? Only one. God, would you be willing to turn your wrath away from the city if only one righteous man can be found? God, will you forgive the sins of the many based on the righteousness of the one? And God's answer would have been yes. How do I know that? Because, ladies and gentlemen, that's exactly what he has done in Christ Jesus. Now understand, the problem was there was not one righteous man to be found in all Israel. And so God came himself in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And faith in that person... Christ brings me into a corporate solidarity with Christ. Because, ladies and gentlemen, listen. Because God is willing to turn his wrath away from the group of people. Because his wrath has been poured out on the one. Just as you see being done in Joshua chapter 7. My friend, are you in union with Christ? Has your sin been punished in Him? If not, you will most assuredly bear the consequences of your own sin in hell. And if you think that that is manipulative or barbaric, then Jesus Christ is manipulative and barbaric too. Because no one spoke more of hell in the New Testament than he did. Just for the moment, just for the moment, grant me, just just hypothetically, grant me that hell is real and that it's terrifying and that it's imminently to be avoided. If that's true, then it would be unkind of me, uncharitable of me. It would be criminal of me. It would be barbaric of me not to warn you. In exactly the same way, it would have been uncharitable, unkind, barbaric for Jesus not to warn the people of his day. Ladies and gentlemen, if I have a cure for Alzheimer's and I refuse to tell you about it, that borders on the criminal. 
Ladies and gentlemen, I don't have a cure for Alzheimer's. But I do have a cure for everlasting torment. So in the most compassionate, the most kind, in the most generous moment of all of my moments, I am telling you, the way to avoid the anger of God is by embracing the Savior that He sent. That Savior is Christ the Lord. And by faith, the many become one in Christ Jesus. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, I love corporate solidarity. Our Father, I do pray that you will... Um, explain what I've made fuzzy and where I have failed to um, to render clear, would you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, um, correct my um, misstatements so that your people can see the beauty of being one with Christ Jesus that you are willing to turn your wrath away from a group because you poured your wrath out on the one. So, Lord Jesus, we embrace you all over again. It is our joy. We find our joy in being in union with you. Oh God, if you brought people here this morning who have not yet embraced that Savior, would you warn them through Joshua 7 of the consequences of their so doing? Do that for Jesus' sake. In his name we pray.